Welcome to Beyond Medicine. My name is Rami Webby. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm a physician with a particular interest in healthcare innovation, building a better healthcare experience, and overall health and well-being. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape to help us build a better medicine and lead a better life. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Lima, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon and a renowned leader and an authority on advanced heart failure, heart transplantation, and mechanical circulatory support devices. Dr. Lima has an incredible long list of accomplishments that I would not be able to fit into a short introduction because I'd need an entire podcast episode to go over all of his incredible accomplishments. Nonetheless, Dr. Lima has an incredible backstory an inspiring and motivating story of what inspired him to become a surgeon. And we talk about his new book, Heart to Beat, and then tie things off and really focus the rest of the episode on the innovation and the advancement and the future of heart failure and how it's being treated. So we geeked out on this episode. We had a great time talking, and I hope you guys like this one. So guys, I'm with Dr. Brian Lima today. He is a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he's going to be talking to us about all of his uh, adventures, technologies, his new book, and uh, a number of other things that I'm excited to talk to you about, Brian. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing Thanks. today? I'm doing great. Doing great. It's a pleasure to be here, man. Appreciate you awesome. having me on. Of course, man. I just wanted to, for those people that aren't familiar with you, I wanted to get a little bit into your background and how you got started in your in your current career and uh you know just the backstory sure so i'll go backwards so right now i uh, am the surgical director of heart transplant for north shore university hospital part of northwell health and the really unique thing about i'm very proud of is it's the first and only heart transplant program ever on long island so i was um had the the uh good fortune to have that opportunity to start that and successfully complete, you know, we did over 40 heart transplants in a little over two years. So um, what got me to this point was uh, a lot of uh, scratching and clawing years of sacrifice, you know, to do cardiac surgery. I trained for 10 years after medical school. So I did my seven years of hard time in general surgery at Duke and my three years of cardiac surgery fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. And um, my career out of training really was based in Texas. I was at Baylor in Dallas, and uh, we were, you know, third busiest heart transplant program in the country. And I was the surgical director of the LVED and mechanical circulatory support program there. And so during that time, we were able to generate a lot of data, a lot of um, abstracts, a lot of publications. We presented a number of things at the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplant. So I would say my area of expertise really within cardiac surgery is the surgical treatment of heart failure, whether it's devices, heart transplant, you know, and um, it was to get to that point, uh, I guess the backstory, so to speak, was I um, was first generation Cuban American. So my parents came over from Cuba on the freedom flights in the late sixties. We grew up in a, you know, uh, rundown apartment in New Jersey, scraping by. My dad worked in a factory making pigment for paint, inhaling terrible fumes, um, barely scraping by. And so 
all I learned was that, you know, hard work pays off, uh, that there's really, it's the ultimate equalizer. And, uh, I kind of, I didn't go to a great high school, you know, I didn't have any AP credits, but I managed to get into Cornell, uh, undergrad and I just studied harder and worked harder than everybody around me. And that's kind of been my, that's the only really thing I know how to do. Yeah. Um, but you'd be surprised that that alone is enough oftentimes because people either a uh, rest on their laurels. They'll just kind of take their foot off the gas or they run out of gas. They just, they're like, you know, I've done enough, whatever. And so I've seen that time and time again at each kind of level, you know, whether it's transitioning from high school to college, college to med school, et cetera, et cetera. You always see that, you know, people are like, all right, this is, I've, I've made it kind of thing. And yeah, you never make it is my, you, you're always a work in progress. Yeah. So that's my whole life philosophy and what really drove me to write the book. Um, but we'll hopefully get into later, but yeah. that's the no, short and sweet. Not <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's so many things I want to yeah. b- bounce, b- bounce off of on all of that. Um, you know, I can connect to a lot of the, you know, it's like that, that immigrant mentality, uh, especially, you know, growing up, I come, I come from uh, similar humble beginnings and I understand like that drive, you know, that, that there's, there's this, you know, like growing up in struggle, there's a certain drive that, um, is formulated and, uh, kind of uh projects you down a certain road uh if you choose to go down like the right road because you can get projected down wrong roads as well absolutely and i think i definitely in my life could have gone down uh, different roads um definitely connect with that and um you know you know we all find different reasons uh and different drives that motivate us into the future um and uh you know growing up in struggle is definitely is 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 uh, it can be a recipe for success in my opinion um a lot of things that i'm really interested in is number 1 i think like anybody that goes 10 years postgraduate training from medical school has <laughs> like there's something there's something unique about you uh to be able to do that is is uh it takes a special kind of person to to, you did seven years cardiothoracic surgery and then another three years of fellowship. Is that right? Well, the, I still went through the old, uh, the, the system in the U.S. was a little backwards, I guess you could say, relative to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, if you want to be a heart surgeon, just like if you want to be a brain surgeon or orthopedics, you match right into that at a medical mm-hmm. school. In the U.S., for sort of even still, you have to do general surgery first. So general surgery is five years of residency. Duke and other, I guess we would say top tier programs, they also make you do two years of research. So it ends up being seven. The reason being is the two years of research are sort of embedded in the middle there. It's the, it's the, it's kind of, they want to create the academic surgeon prototype is their idea. So you mm. come out of residency, published book chapters, you sort of have this portfolio that come to define what training at a place like, like that, you know, has been historically. So that's where you get the seven and then the fellowship for cardiac surgery. I could have stayed at Duke, but I was already, I'd already been there for 11 years, uh, medical school too. I was kind of duked out, even though I love, you know, <laughs> I bleed Duke blue and stuff, but I was like, you know, let me just see how other people do stuff, you know? And I interviewed at Cleveland and fell in love. I, I was, you know, I think by many would regard it as the Mecca of heart surgery. And I really was just taken away by that. And that's where I did my three years of, 
specifically cardiac uh, surgery training. Yeah. And you're right. It, it's a hard sell for a lot of people, uh, especially these days to say, yeah, you're going to train for 10 years. Um, I kind of looked at it as, you know, the same kind of mindset where people see people jumping out of a, you know, parachuting out of an airplane into like a, you know, hostile, you know, war territory. Like, yeah, I want to do that. Like, really? Yeah. You want to do that? <laughs> yeah. It's sort of that almost kind of like, what's the craziest, longest, hardest track. Okay. That that's the one I want to do. Yeah. It's sort of how it came to be for me. Yeah. Um, but some people are just wired that way, I guess. I don't know. I thought yeah, it was a big challenge. Did you, was there some kind of, um, like to do anything like that, that you had, there has to be some natural passion, uh, towards what you're doing, like some natural, um, you know, drive or desire. Like there's some reasoning behind doing something crazy like that. What, what, what is that for you? So my dad had a heart attack, uh, young in his early fifties. I was like 10 years old and that totally uh, scared the hell out of all of us. Um, and he ended up needing heart surgery later on, but uh, the heart has always been kind of at the, um, as far as medicine is concerned, sort of right at the forefront of things that really interest, piqued my interest. And then surgery, I think there's a, the, the huge fork in the road for, I would say the biggest fork of the road for most anybody going into medicine, going to medical schools, surgery, not surgery, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. It, and uh, for me, uh, I wasn't sure about which fork I was going to, which path. And when I watched surgery, I was allowed to scrub in as an undergrad in a pre-med program. It, that was it. I mean, I, I knew I definitely wanted to do, be a surgeon. So yeah. it was the marriage of the two, wanting to be a surgeon and then really my interest in heart. And then the more exposure I got to these folks, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's like going in and swimming in a, you know, in a, in a little pond with sharks. Right. And yeah. uh, <laughs> yep. you're sort of like always like on guard and stuff, but um, yeah. it was, I admired like the guts these guys had the, just what they've been through their sheer, you know, yeah. you know, you're, you're rounding at night as a medical student with a PGY 10 fellow. Right. Yeah. And at, you know, midnight or one, one in the morning in the hospital, you can arguably say they know more medicine than any of the internal medicine residents, more radiology than the radiology. You know, it's just because just yeah. your time, the time Experience. they've been in training. Yeah. But I like that part of it. Yeah. I think there is a, I think everybody that's in medicine has had that pivotal moment where they were first exposed to <sighs> surgery. And a lot of times, a lot of people will pass out in <laughs> their first yeah. time. That's like pretty True. common. Uh, so any medical students listening, don't feel bad if that's you. Uh, but for me, I remember specifically for me, it was my first love. Like I actually went into medicine wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, my first time shadowing a surgeon was I, I did a trip in Mexico where I studied abroad, worked in the Yucatan, um, and I spent a week with some orthopedic surgeons and I, I was in love with it. Mm -hmm. I was like, it was like, it's all I wanted to do. I became obsessed. I'm like, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, you know, you know, I thought I would be a little squeamish when I first saw blood, but I was like, this is cool. Like I saw them, uh, what were they doing? They're fixing a uh, broken humerus, mm -hmm. uh, plating it together. And I was like, cause like I, growing up for me, I used to, uh, I grew up doing a lot of construction work with my dad. We did stuff in the basement, put together stuff. Like, so I always worked with tools. That aspect drew me in. Um, but, uh, you know, like that was a, that was a big moment for me. And then later on I realized, well, I don't want to work in a house. I have this entrepreneurial drive and, 
you know, I don't really want to be working in a hospital and working for someone. So like that kind of unbalanced things and then found a different pathway. Yeah. Um, but, but there, so like for you, the drive is, you know, a little bit from your childhood, um, and some natural curiosity with the, the mechanics and the whole functioning of, of the heart, would you say? Yeah. And I, and I felt it's also one of those things when I, you know, heart transplant, for example, I mean, just the drama and the, it just feels almost a bit, uh, mystical, I, for lack of a better, kind of sounds corny, but no, not at all. Not a, a, yeah. you're in there, you know, you have an empty chest, you know, you're under the, you know, a clock, you got to, you know, you have a heart that comes in, you sew it in. And then all of a sudden the heart just knows what to do. It starts beating again. And you've just literally taken somebody who is a, a cripple in a sense, at the end of the road, couldn't, their quality of life was non-existent. And you've just hit a huge reset button. You've just given them a new lease on life. The impact, I don't know, it's just, um, I don't know, you just really feel like, yeah, you were up for two days, but it was worth it. I mean, that was, um, just having that, it's uh, it's hard to describe that feeling. Yeah. And uh, it's just that feeling of satisfaction that is uh, almost becomes, you're addicted to it. You 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 feel... Uh, you want to keep doing it. You want Absolutely. to help people. You really feel like you're all the stuff, the years you've put in is for a reason. There's, um, and nothing beats that feeling. I have to yeah. say, I, I got, I can totally connect like that, that it is a bit of an addiction. I think, mm-hmm. I think you need that to succeed. You have to be really like passionate about something that you're doing in medicine to really succeed. Um, Oh yeah. You have to, and yeah. you can't, yeah. And, and the, like I said before, the, you can't ever think that it's a humbling field. That's the other thing. People have a misconception about heart surgery that, oh, heart surgeons, you know, they have the God complex, this, that, and the other. Yes. On the one hand, you have to be ex- very confident, very confident, but on the other hand, you cannot be arrogant. Yeah. So because just when you really feel like you're some hot stuff, and you've done a perfect surgery and you're in the zone and you've done it, something will happen. You know, you lose somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, that is the most humbling, humbling thing because there, you're, not everything is in your control, right? There's only one part that you have direct, you can exert direct influence over, but then there's other things that can happen. And so it's high stakes. And yeah. so I think it's a very humbling field. I don't ever get too, yeah. you know, uh, full of myself, so to speak, because, you know, you're always one case away, one complication away from uh, tragedy. And it's a fine line. Yeah. There's a great quote uh, by someone, I don't know who exactly, but there's, it's basically goes something like there are only two people in the world, the humble and the going to get humbled. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great. I like that. I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna go mine. <laughs> no, not at all. That. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, That's good. Yeah, but um, I can tell from the way you're talking about it right now. You know, like there's a level of love and passion for what you do, and that is like, like I always look for that in people when when I'm talking to them, and when they're especially when it's with younger people that want to go into medicine. Like I want to see them light up about something. And that like when they're talking about it, they're really like excited about it. I really think that if someone has to 
you know, convince you or like if you're asking for advice about whether you should do this or not, it's not a great sign, you know, because like when you're convinced and you like, no, people have to try to convince you out of it. I'm so glad you said that because I say that, you know, even in the, in the book, I say, forget how I worded it, but if I have to convince you why, you know, or sell you on why being a heart surgeon is great or what, you know, the career choice you should make, then you shouldn't go into it. Yeah. Uh, the sacrifices are too much. The, it has to be something like you said, you're going to do it. Like it's, that's, that's a done decision. Like you can't see yourself not doing that, whatever it is. I think that this should apply to anything, not just medicine. And then once you're at that point, then it's like, okay, it's advice really about how to get to that, where you want to get to that, where you want to be, which place to train or what experience to get or but you shouldn't have to talk yourself into the final destination, uh, the final goal. I yeah. don't think. No, absolutely, hundred percent. And it's it's. I mean, you really that pat that drive that passion. Once you're convinced of something, like you're doing it for your own intrinsic reasons, like you can't muster up the fortitude that it takes to get through because it's you know it's it's, it's exhausting. It's it's, yeah. it's like mind-numbingly exhausting going through this, but it's worth it if you're, you know, like if you're getting up and doing something you love every day, it doesn't matter how hard it is. You know, it, that, that it just doesn't even apply at some point. Um, so, so that's a really important point. And uh, yeah, like I can tell just from these couple of minutes talking to you, the way you, like you were just talking about like the heart and it's, and it's complexities and the, the mysticism of it. Like, you know, there's something there that is driving you. Oh, yeah. Um, no doubt. What is, what's driving you right now? Like where, what are you most excited about in your field and in the future progression of your field? So there's a lot of levels to that. First off, I think, uh, heart failure is going to impact all of us in medicine, no matter how far away we think we are from heart failure, because it's growing exponentially. It's, it's symptomatic of an aging population. So there's going to be a lot, a huge substrate, a huge denominator of people that have heart failure that are need, are need treatment therapy. Mm-hmm. And in, in concert with that, the technology is evolving at a very, very rapid rate in whether it's uh, heart transplant management, donor, um, you know, availability to devices, whether it's short-term devices to provide, you know, sustenance for people in, in acute shock that are really struggling to more durable, you know, artificial heart pumps, left ventricular assist devices. So there's a lot of evolution going in those, in those areas. So the options we're going to have at our disposal are just going to continue to expand. And I think we're really going to be able to take very, very good care of people, even in the final, most advanced stages of heart failure. Uh, so I'm very passionate about that because I know it's a field that's going to continue to evolve, um, expand. Um, and I would say even right now, if you take a snapshot, 2021, where we are, and just thinking back to where we were just five years ago, we've all already made, I would say, pretty significant strides. I would say the other, I call it an opportunity, is that heart failure is still poorly recognized by both the general public and even I would say by a lot of the medical community, it doesn't get its due credit or street cred or, you know, cancer, for example, I always talk about this cancer 
it's automatic, it's protocolized, someone has a suspected cancer, you, you go through XYZ, you're referred to an oncologist, you chemo radiation surgery, it's all very, you know, neatly, you know, algorithmic, algorithmic. Heart failure, unfortunately, many different kinds of physicians treat heart failure and think, oh yeah, you know, some diuretics, some this, some that, right? But more people die of heart failure than cancer. Uh, the risk of dying from heart failure in five years is greater than most cancers. But yeah. most people don't think of it that way. Most it's the most common thing we see probably in the hospital, people die right. from. Yeah. So my recurring, you know, sort of um, bane of my existence is the seeing the patients that come to us too late. Patients that we could have helped, but they're referred too late, uh, beyond the point at which we have all these great technologies that we can help somebody with, but you know, you can only do so much, right? And so if there's one thing I'm very, very passionate about is using every venue possible, podcasts, writing a book, you name it, to to kind of spread awareness about that so that mm -hmm. people can empower themselves and uh, seek treatment early or at least get referred earlier so that we can at least start to get a sense of things and, and how to maybe be better equipped when that eventuality comes mm -hmm. versus all it all coming as a huge surprise at the 11th hour and this, any other. So um, that's something that I'm very, very passionate about too. Okay. So, so I, I see in, in, in family practice, there's a lot of, uh, you know, heart failure is extremely common. Um, we have, uh, I have patients all the time that, you know, that are being managed in every which way you can think of. And, uh, you know, the, the management goes up and down with terms of like how, how compliant and how well they're doing with their, um, with their follow-up with cardiology and, and all of that. And, um, I guess for someone listening, you know, whether it be a family member that they have, that they know has heart failure, um, whatever it may be, what should, what should people be on the lookout for in terms of when is it time to kind of, uh, look at other options or when is it time to be referred to someone like yourself? Well, it's great. The American college of, uh, cardiology, um, released this consensus document about two, three years ago where they answered this very question and they, they came up with a very useful mnemonic, which I love mnemonics, right? It helped me, you know, I'm sure yourself also memorize a bunch of stuff in, in med school and it's, I need help. And if um, some of those things included on, I need help is anybody who's ever been on inotropes. If they've been readmitted for heart failure more than once hospitalized for heart failure, if they're still having edema, despite escalating diuretics, if they're on goal-directed medical therapy, but they're having to go down on the doses because of poor tolerance, you know, low blood pressure, things like that. Um, if they have an ICD and there's firing of the ICD, uh, things. Like, so it's a very hand, handy mnemonic, but it basically says any heart failure associated worsening or hospitalization, any of those things should warrant at least a heads up to a referring, you know, advanced heart failure, you know, program, mm -hmm. because so much of what we have to then deal with, if we do feel like someone is a candidate for advanced therapies, there's a whole laundry list of things we have to make sure have been completed before we can actually make the final call. 
And some of those things you'd be surprised are lacking, you know, pre-cancer screening, right? We can't do transplant someone with an occult, you know, you know, colon malignancy or breast, but you'd be surprised how many people, they come to us, they're really sick. We got to do this accelerated evaluation and oh, lo and behold, they've not seen a dentist in 10 years. They've never had their screening mammogram. They've not had their screening colonoscopy. And we're like trying now to do all this on someone who's not so stable at the 11th hour, right? So just simply having an earlier referral, it could mean, well, look, you know, you're not so sick at this point that we need to think about a transplant or an LVAD, but we did notice that you're not, you don't have these other things that we would need. Let's go ahead and get those done. So at least we have our ducks in a row, right? And that would mean partnering with our, you know, physicians and referring providers in the community to, you know, work with them to say, hey, you know, thank you for referring this patient. You know, we now they're in our system that we know them, they know us, they know this could be coming, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be some curveball, you know, down the road that no one saw coming. But yeah. at the same time, we're in a better position now because now we can avoid any pitfalls between now and then. Now we're going to make sure they get their what's due as far as screening things and stuff like that. So there's so much that we could do earlier for yeah. these patients. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go ahead and pull a trigger on a transplant or a pump. Mm, gotcha. What, so the disconnect I'm, I'm wondering about is like, because we will refer to cardiology, right? Where's, does cardiology refer to you or does, how did, when do they do, do they decide to refer to you or can, can the general practice primary care doctor refer right to the advanced uh, heart failure specialist? I would say traditionally, yes. Uh, the pathway has been to a general cardiologist first. Okay. And then it's really typically in the, in the, the purview of the general cardiologist to then determine when that patient should be referred to an advanced heart failure cardiologist. But I would argue that doesn't necessarily need to be the case so much. Um, I mean, if you see a patient uh, in your office as a general practitioner, a family medicine physician, and you suspect a breast mass, you know, you're doing an exam and you feel you wouldn't hesitate in sending them to another, you know, you would go it's pretty protocolized, right? You oncologist, yeah. uh, they would get their, their mammogram, et cetera. So I would say for heart failure, we, we need to probably get to that point as well. Um, it's, it's one less step. And I think part of the issue is that it, the advanced heart failure cardiology specialty, right, has not been around that long. It's been around 10 years maybe. So there's a bit of a challenge too when you a general cardiologist may say, well, wait a minute, I know how to treat heart failure. Why do I need to refer to this patient to what are they going to do that I can't? You know, right? I, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that, which is understandable. It's still not caught on, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's more of this the programmatic, you know, what's entailed in really getting all the players on the team. It's a big team to yeah. really get a good look at that patient to make sure we've got everything. Uh, we're, we're covering all the angles. So, and so, uh, and if they don't meet criteria, I think we also have to do a better job at, about getting patients back to their referring providers. So they don't feel like they lost a patient. Yeah. Like, you know, I sent the patient to this team and then I never see them again, or they don't involve me and, you know, keep me apprised of what's going on. So it's yeah. also behooves us on our end to do a better job with that too. Gotcha. Okay. And once a patient's with you now, where does like the, where is the innovation and the new kind of the future of, um, 
you know, this technology and the advancements in your field, where is it heading towards and where do you see us going in terms of treating heart failure, in terms of heart transplants, uh, stem cells, things like that? So it's a, it's a well-known fact that we're only really scratching the surface for how many patients we're treating who need some form of heart replacement therapy. Uh, we're only doing about 3,000 heart transplants in the United States. We probably should be doing 10 times that, roughly. Mm. There are, you know, part of the issues are enough donor hearts to go around. So one way is to just come up with a, a mechanical alternative, the LVAD, left ventricular assist device, or the heart pump, artificial heart, as one strategy to make up the difference. And then how do we... The other part is how do we expand the donor pool for heart transplant or how do we grow our own hearts? So these are two competing pathways that are being developed in parallel. So I would say on the artificial heart side, that part is really blown up. I think the next phase that we're going to see is wireless heart pumps. So right now, ventricular assist devices, part of what many patients say is the barrier to adoption is, you know, you still have a, a power cord that exits through the abdominal wall connected to batteries. So in that regard, you can't really submerge in water. You can't go into a tub bath. You can't, you know, go into a swimming pool. So, yeah. um, and it's, you know, having this cord that you have to be, you know, mindful of, make sure it's their dressing is, you know, that area is super clean. Uh, but when the technology evolves that you can come up with a battery that can, you know, power a machine, a pump like that continuously without having to have some external, you know, connected source, mm-hmm. that's going to really be a huge development that I think is going to lead to, uh, an exponential, uh, number of these being implanted because that's going to take away at one giant, you know, barrier to adoption. And as we speak, the pumps are going to get smaller, sleeker left and right-sided support, total artificial heart. So all those things are being developed. And I think I would say within the next five to 10 years, that's going to be mainstream, just wow. having that. Almost, I would say, on on par with ICDs and pacemakers. Really, I really do. Minimally wow. invasive approaches, not doing a full sternotomy, doing like a mini thoracotomy for implants. Who knows, maybe even percutaneous delivery. All sorts of stuff are on the table for that. Wow, that's the, incredible. Yeah, Yeah, and on the heart side... We're already seeing expanding the donor pool using uh, hearts from non-brain dead donors, so DCD hearts, where you can basically take a heart out of someone who's who's expired and see if you can resuscitate the heart um, on a ex vivo perfusion apparatus. The uh, Transmedics, for example, has that technology. Mm-hmm. Or you could take hearts you normally would have never even been able to consider and resuscitate them for a few hours on this machine and then see if you can get them. That could, you know, in, in England and Australia, that's expanded a donor pool by 40% or so. Wow. And that hopefully should become mainstream here in the next year or two. And then as far as growing hearts from stem cells, that's ongoing. That It's hard to know, or, you know, or even xenotransplant, right? That's another thing, yeah. you know. Um, those are always going to be, and then still are viable alternatives if we can get, get them there. But... I think there's still a ways to go. Uh, I think what's more, I would say, realistically kind of right coming up is the 
you know, the miniaturization and wireless sort of upgrade of heart pumps. Uh, and I think that's going to be huge for the field. Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing to me that there's that kind of technology where you can create an artificial heart, something that's just taking over pumping blood throughout their whole body, you know, something that we've created, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like this idea of becoming bionic or, you know, becoming, uh, you know, robotic in a way, you, you know, like we're replacing organs, one, one organ at a time. Um, it's, it's, uh, do you think that, that like this artificial heart, can it, do you think it ever get to the point where this is something that's maybe even works better than a human heart? Well, I mean, one can only hope. I, I guess the, the issue you always face with any foreign object is infection and clot. So mm-hmm. even there's, there's no pump ever so far that you've been able to implant where you don't have some requirement for anticoagulation, mm-hmm. ongoing anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you know the surfaces of the pump, uh, the, in, the inner workings of the, of the pump housing, you know, blood can sort of congeal. So you want to keep that running smoothly. So anytime you have any ongoing anticoagulation, you're introducing risk, right? Risk of bleeding or something. So in that regard, that's, you know, you don't have to, for your own native heart, when it's working the way it should, you don't need anticoagulation. So um, if they can overcome that aspect, that'd be one thing. Mm -hmm. The wireless thing, I think is that is going to be not only for medicine, I mean, for this specific niche in medicine, but in general, right? I mean, imagine not having to connect your, your cell phone, your, everything is unplugged. Everything is wireless. You can charge wirelessly mm-hmm. or have, you know, that's going to be a whole new sort of technology. That's yeah. going to be, so uh, that's going to be exciting too. Um, it remains to be seen. I mean, it's always possible, but I think it does open up the idea of having, not having to worry about immunosuppression or, uh, finding a donor, you know, waiting, things like that, you know, the risk of immunosuppression and infection. So there's a lot of pros and cons right now. People would still argue that heart transplant is still the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, even though LVADs have come a long, long way. And, and I think if they become wireless, that's going to be a more difficult argument to make. I think mm-hmm. it's going to, you know, decrease that gap. A little bit so we'll see but it's all stuff that's coming up so for people still looking at what they want to go into in medicine i, th- I would say heart failure is is, is going to be wide wide open for yeah yeah it's um like where do you see in in let's say like a hundred years like if you just wow. could, if you just look down the line in terms of mm-hmm. trends what do you think is going to be the future well i think given how you know, we were able to come up with a, a vaccine for COVID in like six months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think genetic, you know, manipulation of the genome where I think genetic, you know, molecular therapies to basically cure or, or you know, illness or prevent illness or, you know, render someone, you know, it's, I think it's going to be, you know, nanotechnology also, whether it's for cancer therapy um, infection. I mean, I think it's who knows. I mean, that's like, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the obviously molecular based medicine is going to keep, yeah. you know, churning forward. So I imagine, uh, you know, meatheads like me will probably be out of business. <laughs> well, not really. You'll, be, you'll, you'll need to be the, you'll need to be like the, 
the facil the facilitator of sure. this. Maybe. Thing, you know, like Maybe. um and I, I don't I don't think I, I always I think that like what's really cool is um you know the possibility of growing another human heart, you know, through stem cells, creating like your own human heart that's not going to be rejected by your auto by your immune system that's just going to be part of you you know it's part of your mm-hmm. dna uh replicating that or doing that in some way like that's the science fiction that you know that's that's like coming to life you know but like it's obviously probably very far away but uh it's still if we're not as far away as you know the ghost heart as as you describe it mm-hmm. is being done it's being it's been i know for at least 10 years now it's been um there's a lot of, you know, Harold Ott's laboratory at Mass General, Doris Taylor's uh, laboratory down in Houston. They've successfully been able to create, you know, but basically the idea is you get a scaffold, you take a heart, you put it on a, on a scaffold, you know, where you can perfuse the heart with a, a detergent to digest away all the tissue and leave behind the fibroskeleton of the heart, the so-called ghost heart. Oh, and then okay. you can then repopulate that fibroskeleton with stem cells. So if you take stem cells from the person who needs the heart mm-hmm. and populate that scaffold you have, and then put it in an incubator, you have a heart in three or four days. <laughs> wow. And they've, they've shown this, you could do this. Yeah. Well, where they, I think have run into trouble or the, is that what you get with that is it doesn't really, it contracts and things like that, but it doesn't have the, you know, the, the electrical system. It, it's just not, it's not able to really power. It's not ready for prime time yet. Right. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that they were to do that though, I mean, that proof of concept then it's just a matter of fine tuning that. And so I think that is imminently possible as long as they can get it to work where it could really pump. Right. Yeah. But yeah. That'd be the idea. You basically, all you need is your own stem cells. They have a scaffold they can pull off the shelf. It could be from an animal or who knows mm-hmm. it's, acell- it's acellular or sort of non-immunogenic. And they just say, okay, we'll have your heart ready for you by Tuesday or something. And you come in and get your heart. That'd be crazy, but it's not, out of the you know realm of possibility, I don't think. Yeah, actually, yeah. Wow, that is that is incredible. I'm blown away with all of this. Like, um, like when I when I when you start talking about it and you think about what's possible, it's always um, it's always interesting. Like, does that does that kind of stuff get you excited? Very excited. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because I mean I, I've you know I did a lot of research during my training, and I actually did research in a transplant lab during medical school. So, uh, with studying with stem cells and things like that. So for me, that, that is something I've always been very excited about. And, um, so I think it's really interesting to see how that plays out in the future. I think at the end of the day, it's going to help more people. It's just going to, there's people dying, thousands of people dying every day because they're they're waiting for an organ. So I think anything that can help that is going to be, is going to be massive. Uh, but it's, you know, I love tinkering with the, the new devices that come out as well for acute shock. That's a whole other area that, mm-hmm. you know, used to be just had a balloon pump, right? But now you have five or six other possible things that you could do depending on what kind of access you have, at, you know, your disposal, what the issue is, whether it's right-sided failure, left-sided failure, both. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has really, really come along. You know, the Impellas, the Protect Duos, those those sorts of technologies, mm-hmm. like miniature LVADs mounted on on catheters. Can we can we describe? Because for people listening that yeah. don't don't have a medical background, can we like kind of break it down, like what what all this is and like sure. how it works? So when someone comes in in shock for whatever reason, let's say they've had a massive heart attack, 
and they're literally that they, they they you can't mount a, a, a stable enough blood pressure. They're going to die. They're going to die in minutes. So what do you do for that person? Well, they're so sick that that's that's not the person you're going to be able to bring to the operating room and do a big open heart surgery and implant an artificial heart pump. Uh, heart transplant's not possible, right? There's the logistics. So how do you support that person? And so there's a variety of instruments, catheters, pumps that we can use that are external to the body where all we really need to do is gain access to the circulation. So um, one example is ECMO is probably the easiest one. And that is basically putting in a, bu- a big hose in an artery, a big hose in a vein, maybe the artery and vein in the groin. And you basically connect that person to an external pump, just like we do in heart surgery, the heart-lung machine, right? Mm-hmm. Any heart surgery, you have to connect someone to the heart-lung machine so that you can then do heart surgery and then re, you know, take them off the heart-lung machine. So this is basically a portable heart-lung machine. That's ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And the, so that's that's been around for a while. Uh, the other options include an impella. So an impella is a catheter that has on the end of it, a little miniaturized vacuum. Um, so what the idea is you want to float that catheter into the left ventricle, the ventricle that's meant to pump blood to the body. That's just weakened because mm-hmm. of what's happened. And so you have this catheter that goes in there and it basically drains out the ventricle. And it takes over the work for that ventricle. So all that blood that this ventricle is supposed to pump to the body is now being drained through this catheter and then ejected out to where it's supposed to go. So that is also been a game changer. And there's different sizes. And, you know, you can put them in directly like you're putting in an IV into the artery. You can put a bigger one in through the artery right underneath the collarbone. You can have patients wait for a heart transplant for weeks and weeks while they have this device in place and be sitting up in a chair, walking off the ventilator as they're, you know, uh, being supported accurate, you know, um, adequately as they're waiting for the heart. Wow. And then you have other devices that are meant to support the right side of the heart that you just place inside the right ventricle. So these are just catheters that can drain different chambers of the heart so that you, so the heart doesn't distend mm-hmm. and you basically are taking over the work of the heart but with these strategically placed tubes that serve almost like a heart lung machine. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's to me, like, like these are things that are just, um, you know, it, it almost seems like science fiction, but it's obviously real, you know, like it's like, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it can get pretty complicated as far as you, you know, you, if you have different configurations of things, uh, you can have three or, you know, up to three different, systems in place at the same time, depending on what, what's, what you need. Um, and these really have also helped patients get to transplant because now you have a way to support them. They're not bed bound. They could be sitting up while yeah. they're waiting in the hospital. So that's really uh, been a nice development. I'd say it's really come along in the last five years. Wow. I would say. Yeah. What about in terms of uh, transplants? Like, is there a separate um, kind of, uh, because transplants have been going on for, for, for a long time. Where do you see like the, the future of heart transplants going? Well, I think the challenge has always been expanding the donor pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, there have been a couple of things that have happened that have allowed us to do that. 
most recently the hepatitis C issue. So it used to be that hepatitis C was largely incurable or the therapies were very poorly tolerated and not, not very high cure rates. Mm-hmm. But approximately five years ago, drugs were developed that were, you know, once a day pills that eradicate hepatitis C after just taking it for three months and it's, that's it, it's gone. Yeah. So that really opened the door to using hepatitis C donors because we've also unfortunately seen the, um, the epidemic and drug overdoses in our country, some areas impacted more than others. But with that, we've seen a huge increase in donors, organ donors that are hepatitis C positive. They died from an overdose, hepatitis C positive. Mm -hmm. And prior to these medications, these were hearts, organs that we could not use just simply Mm -hmm. because we couldn't knowingly infect somebody with hepatitis C. Mm. But now with these drugs, we, we can do this. And we do this all the time now. Mm. And we've shown that it's safe. It's effective. Uh, the hepatitis C is cured in the recipient. So most of them do get hepatitis C mm-hmm. by, by giving them a heart from, or an organ from another hepatitis C person. Yeah. Um, but you cure it. And so uh, you, cure it, great, you cure it afterwards. You cure it afterwards. So that's greatly oh, gotcha. expanded the pool. Mm-hmm. And as I was mentioning before, using these uh non-brain dead donors. It means donors that are technically, their brain is still damaged, but not to the point where they can be legally declared brain dead by neurologists. Mm -hmm. But their condition is such that their family is going to withdraw support. And so in those instances, you're basically removing organs after the support has been withdrawn and they've, and they've passed. Mm -hmm. The problem is, how do you know that, you know, someone who's been dead for five minutes, how can you be assured that the heart is okay? Yeah. You know, and yeah. so this, what I affectionately refer to as the heart in a box technology is you take this heart, you put it on this machine, you, and you, you resuscitate it, perfuse it with the, the native blood from the donor, and mm-hmm. you see if it perks up and appears functional, and then you can use that heart. So, um, wow. that, that has also, to be a quick process. like. Yeah, so it's it's very protocolized. You can't, you know, at once you've confirmed that the person has passed, uh, you know, the A line's gone flat. They've for at least five minutes. Mm-hmm. You, then you you know remove the organ and you perfuse it. And there's parameters that we look at to see if the heart's usable. Some mm-hmm. of it is just visual. Others are, you know, we measure lactate in the blood that's drained out of the heart. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that, I mean, there's countless numbers of organs that aren't being used because they're come from these situations, these DCD mm-hmm. donors. So, so is, it, is it you that's doing, are you removing the heart? Like, uh, or is it the heart surgeon that's essentially removing? Yeah, we, you know, we typically have a team. So um, at any given moment, to, you know, typically there's two teams, right? There's the donor team and the recipient team. Yeah. Because often uh, the recipient may have had heart surgery before. Mm-hmm. So there's scar tissue. So a lot of that has to be dissected free and worked on in anticipation of the donor heart arriving into, oh, okay. into the hospital. So typically, but it'll be either myself or someone on the team that would go out to do these, uh, well, I would say special procurements where you're, you know, uh, taking the heart out and, and planting it on, you know, connecting it onto this apparatus to have mm-hmm. it uh, be perfused. Um, but this is, this is going to become very commonplace. Yeah. Uh, and I think, greatly expand, but I think it's only going to go to a point because heart failure is growing so fast that while yes, these, these measures are going to certainly be able to, you know, increase the number of heart transplants we're doing. I don't, I don't think it's going to be enough 
So I, I still think there's going to be a need for these mechanical alternatives. Gotcha. Will heart transplant be completely supplanted by these mechanical alternatives? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't imagine that scenario, but time will tell. Interesting. So it sounds like there's also a lot of coordination that's involved in all of this. Extreme amount of coordination. Yeah. Is that like a big logistical uh, kind of like uh, impairment or like uh, not impairment, but like kind of adds to the complexity of everything? Yeah, it means uh, uh, nobody is a one-man show. It's a team sport. Yeah. You have to be able to work well with others and teams. There's coordinators. There's nurses. There's PAs. There's NPs, uh, social worker. It's it's like a whole giant team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you really have to be someone that can play well in the sandbox. You have to be a good listener. Um, there's a lot of rules and regulations, you know, you, you kind of have to, you know, toe the line with so many things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of complexity where it's a very highly scrutinized field, meaning, you know, your, your outcomes have to really be up to snuff as they should be. Uh, yeah. so, you know, you can't, um, and even, you know, one thing that we've done with our team here is uh, there's not a lot of solo decisions, meaning whether it's we say, yes, someone is a candidate for these therapies or not, uh, that's team decision. That's not a one-person decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not a certain heart is good as a donor that we should take, that's usually a conversation between a couple of people, sometimes at two yeah. in the morning, Right. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, it's not the, you know, walk in in the morning and do two or three cases and then leave type right. of existence. It's random hours, random days, you know, and you have to be at your best at, you know, at the worst possible time. Yeah, I can time. only imagine, I can only imagine like how soon, how like urgent, like something can come up where it's like, okay, they need it now. Or, you know, they're going like um, they're going to need to be on some kind of supportive treatment or something like that. And, um, you know, like you're dealing with uh, with life and death at a degree that most of us are not dealing with, um, like, you know, regularly. So that's like, a, you know, that's like a huge responsibility, I can imagine. Um, and then like the whole, there's so many things that I can imagine go into the decision-making process because there's the risks and the benefits and like really weighing those things. And you have to be there. Like if you're, if the family member is making a big decision like that, or the patient's making a big decision, they want to be speaking to you. They don't want to speak to anybody else, you know, like, yeah, it's a tough. Uh, <laughs> so you, I mean, you're doing, you're doing God's work in a way. But, Thank you. I appreciate but, that. Yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. And it's tough because the problem I tell people too is there's no sure thing, right? Uh, because people always want to, well, what's the risk? Or um, there's no such thing as a perfect heart. You know, every you have to weigh the risk benefit. All about everything in medicine is weighing risk benefits. There's no free lunches. Every right. surgery, no matter how small, there's a risk. There's nothing that's zero percent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to balance. Okay, how sick is the recipient? Can they afford to wait for something better? Right? Is this their last shot? You know, so just kind of knee jerk saying, "Ah, that heart doesn't sound perfect." I'm going to say, "No." Well, you may you may have just sealed that person's fate, right? Mm, yeah. Versus uh, being a little open, saying, "Well, wait a minute, you know, that doesn't sound perfect, but 
you know, I've had, you know, them repeat echoes on the donors. I've had them try different inotropes on the donors. I've had them re, you know, certain things that you could do to try to see if you can get it maybe more perfect ish, mm-hmm. right. Just to see if maybe you don't want to just say no. And then have that be, you know, so it's a huge decision to make um, because someone's life's hanging in the balance, uh, especially if they're really struggling and uh, need a heart yesterday. Yeah. So, and sometimes you can't, you have to do maybe not, a, not the greatest heart in the world, not the greatest heart you've ever but it's good enough that, you know, weighing the risks benefits, this gives us a better shot at getting this person alive and out of the hospital than if we keep them in their current state, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they'll need a little bit more support coming out of the gates, but that's better than if we don't take this hard. And, you know, so all these things have to be weighed mm-hmm. and it's a tough call a lot of times, but yeah. um, we do the best we can uh, for their sake. Yeah. I imagine there's a, probably a lot of highs and lows in all of this. Um, let, let, let's, let's stay on We'll stay on a positive note for a yeah, second good. because like, what are the, what are the, what are those beautiful moments where it's like, you've saved someone's life. You gave them a second lease on life again. Like, what is that like for someone, especially like maybe a young person, maybe somebody, you know, like in a situation, do you have any like stories like that, that like really sure. stand out? Definitely. Um, well, you know, there's always the, when you get to go and tell them they're, you know, they're, they're sitting in their ICU, you know, they're on all these machines, they're waiting, they're waiting. It could be two weeks, three weeks. And then you go in there and say, I got some good news. We got a heart for you. That's always very emotional because this yeah. person's like, you know, they're overwhelmed with uh, relief and happiness and elation. Like, wow. Like, okay. It finally, you know, yeah. And so that's an amazing, you know, nurses, the bedside nurses are always in tears. The patients in tears. I'm sometimes. I'm getting know, it. I'm tearing uh, up right yeah, now. Yeah, you telling I, me this. <laughs> I, try, I try to be a tough guy. You know? I say there's no crying in heart surgery, but you, know, yeah. you can't. Yeah, yeah. But oh, you can't. You can't not yeah, like shed yeah. a tear when you're telling yeah. someone they're getting a heart. Like that's just a yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's that's that's a huge moment, yeah. right? And then uh, when you get to see them afterwards, and they can actually function and 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 breathe, we had the, you know, really neat opportunity to the very, very first heart transplant ever on Long Island. You know, Long Island is, is, if you count Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, that's 8 million people, you know, Manhattan, Skyline, you know, so this is a high, you know, uh, visibility thing. Yeah. Talk about if you fail, everyone's going to know, right? Yeah. Imagine the pressure. So the first heart transplant that night was magical. And, uh, you know, everything went fantastic. Thank God it went perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of cameras, a lot of, um, you know, all eyes were on us. And one of the neat things that happened, which again, just speaks to how, you know, mystical this stuff is, yeah. is uh, I was taking the old heart out, um, getting ready to pass it off. Something I do, you know, without even thinking Yeah. as I was taking it out, holding it up, it started beating a few times in my, in my hands, you know, like, like it wasn't ready to give up yet almost. Right. And then we recorded that. And, uh, that was just, uh, see, you know, it's just, I don't know. It just makes you think about so many different things. Yeah. Um, but that heart went great and she, you know, we couldn't have picked a better first patient to do it in. She's so, uh, dynamic and, uh, her name's Yvonne. She just could, 
really articulate afterwards how unbelievably better she felt. Like she could breathe. Like yeah. she didn't feel like she was struggling to breathe. She could feel, she said she could feel her heart beat, yeah. you know, in her chest. Like um, it was just an amazing thing. Um, you know, and having the press conferences and all that stuff afterwards, but by far and away the proudest moment of my career, because again, that, that could have gone. So, you know, it was, it was going out on a limb and, and having yeah. trust in our team and myself that we were doing the right thing. Um, but that was a huge moment for, for me, yeah. for Long Island, for our hospital, for the patient, of course, you know, but that was, I think uh, that's going to be the most memorable yeah. for me just because of how much was riding on that. And you've done several since then. Is that right? Yes. So we, that was number one. Um, we are close to 50 now and, um, I'm actually moving on to another, uh, opportunity back in, in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, which I'm very excited about, but, um, there's so many stories with young people, older, I mean, it, I could probably take up a few hours talking about, uh, all the different highs. The highs are, it's incredible. Just, um, Cause I mean, it literally is, I mean, this is such a, and you're holding a human heart in your hand. Like that's the, yeah, that's, 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 I mean, how many people in the world can say that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. I feel super. I I feel, I don't take it for granted. I feel extremely fortunate uh, to, to be able to be in this position to do that. I take it very seriously, obviously. Um, But it's, uh, you never take it for granted. You can't. Yeah. You have to take each moment as it comes. Um, so. Wow. What, what, like you mentioned mystic, like a mystical experience, um, as you like when you held that heart, um, like what, what goes on? Like, like, what are those experiences like? Like I, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I think like some, sometimes it's hard to mix the uh, talks of like spirituality and um, mm-hmm. medicine and, you know, like the experiences you have, but there, I've had these experiences even, and, you know, throughout my career that have made me, you know, really feel a sense of something, you know, uniting all of us. Like, do you, have you had any of those like, really profound experiences while you've been doing that? I definitely have. Um, just because I, there have been many, many times where I felt like uh, had we had a, the heart not come in another day or something, that person wouldn't have survived. Yeah. So things happening just in the nick of time, you know, when I, um, that experience I, I described with holding that heart and how it was beating, that actually was something I reflected on a lot. And I was uh, on an aside still working on this book idea that I've been trying to really put together. I couldn't, I was trying to come up with like a unifying theme for call it my life philosophy or whatever, for how do you, and it, that experience with the heart helped um, basically put it all together, encapsulate everything. Because then I came up with the heart way, meaning that here's you have a heart that, despite how the grim circumstances, it still didn't want to give up. It was still beating. It was still doing the only thing it knows how to do. It's beat. Yeah. And I kind of then took that and made it into basically the backbone of the whole book. Mm-hmm. What if we just uh, like our own hearts? just kept going and moving no matter what keep, you know, we run into a problem, a failure, a setback, 
we don't dwell on it and and kind of spin our wheels. We just keep going, sort of the heart way approach. Yeah. And I flesh it out a lot more, but that actually helped put so much together for me because I think so much of what we deal with personally, professionally, there's always going to be things that really try our patience, try our uh, our resilience, uh, and make or break us. And I think no matter what it's been, no matter how, you know, uh, giant the, the implications were, it always, it always boiled down to just, okay, just keep going. Just, you can't, you know, yeah, that wasn't great. That was bad. But if you dwell on it, it's not going to help anything. If you just keep beating yourself up about it, you just have to keep going and moving and try to be better for it and learn from your mistakes and, and I think uh, that really helped sort of coalesce all of that into, into this, this unifying theme. And uh, I think if, if many of us just did that more often than not and not really cared about, or what are people going to say? What are people going to think? What if I do this or, you know, go out on a limb and do this? Mm-hmm. Just do it. Just keep going. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's really when I, when I really, I wrote the book in three months after that. And <laughs> it was just like, you know, then it was just like, okay. Dude, I'm, pu- I'm pumped up right now. Dude. I'm, pu- <laughs> I'm yeah, so pumped after that little, after that speech. Yeah. Uh, Cause I resonate it. I resonate with it so much, man, because, um, you know, like you got it, you got to kind of march to your own beat in a way, you know, like mm-hmm. just like figure out what you want. Forget about what everybody else is, is, is has planned for you or what they want you to be. And, do what you love to do, be passionate about it, you know, just go for it, you know, do yep. what you, what you're meant to be, you know, like, I, I, I love that, man. I, I really, and I believe in it, you know, it's the way I try to live my life. Um, but it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard place to get to for a lot of people because yeah. so much pressure from everything else around us, from family, from what people think, like, like you got you got to break through that. Like that's what I try to tell people all the time, especially these younger um, pre med students or people like going into medicine. It's like figure it out. Like I try to discourage people from going into medicine because like I try to push their buttons. I try mm-hmm. to see like, can I change your mind? If I can change your mind, you don't go into medicine. Yeah, I had a lot of people tell me, you know, uh, when I was in training and stuff that, oh, no, you know, if I were you, I would get an MBA and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't bother with this. You know, just people that had gotten frustrated with the bureaucracy of medicine and, and yeah, certainly medicine has changed, but I think, uh, and when I reflect on that, I think it's people, you have to bring it back to what got you there to begin with. And mm-hmm. what got you, me there to begin with, which I hope is what gets everybody else, you know, to the idea of being a physician is the patient taking care of patients and, and, and saving lives and doing that. And, and if you lose sight of that or allow yourself to lose sight of that, then things don't make sense anymore. Yeah. And I think that's where you have physician burnout and things like, you know, a lot of really tough things that we had to deal with. Uh, and as long, I think if we can keep bringing it back to the central unifying, you know, motivating factor, the reason we did, we're, we're in this, mm-hmm. um, because then it then things make sense. Then you're willing to kind of tolerate uh, or persevere through these other uh, other issues. Yeah. Um, 
today's world is tough, man. I mean, I didn't have social media coming through. I think social media, I talk about it a lot in the book. It's a blessing and a curse at the same time. I think mm-hmm. what it, what it was intended for certainly is still there. I mean, you can, you know, connect with people you've lost touch with. You can be really keep, uh, stay in the loop about current events and other things and what's going on. You can, but on the other hand, it can also feed you this lie, which is this quick, you know, get rich quick, you know, yeah. overnight, overnight success. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. Look at me, look at me and, uh, and try to sell a 10 year training to someone who's like, well, wait a minute, 10 years. That's crazy. I could, you know, there's yeah. this guy on Instagram who, you know, I'm going to do that. That guy's rich and doing this and it took him whatever. So, it's so bad. Yeah. So I think, um, I talk a lot about that, uh, in the book, um, because, uh, nothing, things have changed, but things haven't changed. You know, if it's something still meaningful, it's going to be hard. It's going to take time. Uh, you will fail at various points. It's going to suck. <laughs> Yeah. But if it's not that, then it's too good to be true. It's just like the, you know, weight loss yeah. pill that the miracle <laughs> weight loss pill. That, yeah. The same applies to our health, right? People, yeah. uh, people don't want to deal with uh, having to do. There's things that we have to do every day that are not pleasant for our own good. Right. Yeah. And there's no way around it. And, and I think people have lost that people want things now, Amazon prime, Amazon instant, Amazon, you know, so that's the, that's what I think is going to hold many of us back or or many, I think the younger folks back too, Mm -hmm. from really reaching their potential is wanting the quick, you know, the quick fix, the life hack. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up a good point. It's like, they see these people on social media doing like, like you doing like a 10 year postgraduate training specialty. Like you look, you look badass, man. You look, you look cool. You know, like we all want to be you, you. but what you did, what you do, like, like, like not many people can do that. And you have to be kind of in a way born for it, but not necessarily born for it. It's like, you have to like, it has to be something that's your calling. Like you gotta, like, it's gotta be something driving you in that direction. You can't just look at someone and say they look so cool. You got to be moved by them or inspired by them to a level that's like, you can't see yourself doing anything else, you know? Yeah, I got, I agree because I, uh, you have to want it. No one can want it for you. But I think people also need to, you know, I talk about this too. I ask any little kid, you know, four years old, three years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. And 99 or 999 times out of a thousand, that kid is going to light up. Right. Yeah. And super pumped to tell you and share what his amazing or her amazing dream is. is right. Yeah. They're going to say, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be this want to be that. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is, you know, they don't care what people think. Right. That's whatever. Yeah. And uh, somewhere along the way, I think we all sort of get, we grow up or we let society dictate to us what's realistic or not, what, what's really possible for you or for me or, and that's all bull, man. Yeah. I, I think, um, if my older, if my current self would have gone to my, you know, 10 year old or 12 year old self and said, Hey, you're going to be a heart surgeon. I'm like, what? You're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no way. That's insane. Yeah. There's absolutely no way. I mean, that's, 
but uh, no one is born doing any of this stuff. Yeah. No one, you know, no one is born a concert pianist or a master chess player or whatever you have. I mean, it's mastery, it's reps, it's time. It's, there's nothing special about what I did. I just put myself in the position to, to gain the experiences to do it. And mm-hmm. I fought like hell and worked really hard. I worked, worked harder than everybody around me, but mm-hmm. um, that does, it means it's possible. You just have to want it. And I think a lot of people don't, they give up on, uh, you know, they, they go just, they, they, they inch up to the, to, you know, the, the gates to see if they want to, you know, take a plunge and then like, ah, I don't know. It looks a little risky yeah. or that looks like it's going to be really painful or that looks like it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Let me just keep skating along the sidelines here and, you know, criticize the one that's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I want to change that. Yeah. Did you, you talk a little, you talk about this in your book. Is that right? I do. Yeah. It's a uh, heart to beat, correct? Mm-hmm. Heart to beat. Heart to beat. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that and um, I want to be respectful of your time and I want to make sure uh, like number one, I want P I, I'm buying your book myself and I'm going to buy it for one Thank of our you. listeners uh, cool. that, that share this episode. But I want to, I want to just go in like, what's your um, like, What's the book about? What is what is the story, the background, and like what what are people going to get from it? Sure. So uh, the the shortest way I could describe it is it's a motivational memoir, meaning that it um, it's a book that covers all the themes of being an entrepreneur, um, having grit, having resilience, the tools you need to be successful. But it's told through kind of how I learned these lessons along the way through my life, kind of starting off you know, uh, as a, as a son of Cuban immigrants, you know, barely scraping by no role models or professional role models. Mm-hmm. And learning as I went, how I kind of overcame each obstacle, each challenge, how I progressed academically and professionally, and, and then how these different themes emerged and they're universal themes. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're only applicable to my life or my story because of, of medicine. It's really a universal theme. Mm-hmm. And the, the real, the intent of the book is to try to spark, you know, people into action, into not being passive anymore about their life, but actually being, taking ownership mm-hmm. and acknowledging that, you know, if they're going to be successful, it's going to come from them, not from some, you know, God-given talent that they have, or it's about yeah. putting in the work and the time. So I do my best to sort of make these themes universal, but just told through the story of my, of, uh, of my life. And at the very end of the book, the final section is about heart health and kind of behind the scenes of what I do specifically as a heart surgeon. But also, it's also meant to kind of, again, make the parallels between the human heart and the figurative heart. You know, so the figurative heart is all the, you know, career stuff, academic stuff how you get to be successful there using the heart way. And then all those things directly, you know, are directly analogous to your physical heart, your physical heart. You know, if you train it, you know, like a, like a, a world-class cyclist, you know, their heart beats so strong, it could withstand anything. It could. So if you do that in your, you know, metaphorical heart life, right. Where you put yourself through, you know, tough situations and you come out and your, your metaphysical heart is stronger. At the same time, if you don't take care of your heart, if you eat poorly, you do not exercise, you don't do all the things to, you know, you're only 
not only do you compromise your own health, your own life, you know, span, but just like if you did that in your metaphysical life, if you don't do those things, you're not going to do well. You're, you're, you're not going to reach your, your, you know, your true potential. Yeah. Same thing, physically speaking, you're not going to live as long as you should or lead the healthy life that you should. Mm. So uh, I make a lot of those um, uh, parallels throughout the book. And then I specifically hone on heart health at the end. Man, I love that. That's, that's great. And I believe in that. Like when you're work, when you're doing work for, for that's coming from the heart, I really think like your, 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 your heart is almost like swelling with joy, you know, and it's yeah. like, that's gotta be good for your heart health. Definitely. Yeah. You know, Definitely. so, so uh, we, we got to do another conversation on this in the future. Uh, sure. I'd love to do this again with you sometime. Uh, where can people, where can people connect with you, follow you or learn more about you? So on social media, my handle is Brian Lima MD, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And then um, I have a website, BrianLimaMD.com. And then the book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's heart to beat, uh, like the human heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's available anywhere books are sold. So please uh, take a look. It's Perfect. a good one. Perfect. Dr. Dr. Lima, thank you so much. Honestly, this has been, I, I love this conversation. Um, thank you. Same here. Like You definitely got me uh, excited and pumped up. Like now I'm about to go and crush my day. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm motivated. I love seeing good. people, man. So I appreciate you. Uh, thanks for coming on here. And I, I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Same here. Best of luck to you, my man. Take care. Thanks, man.